Okay, we're taking our Bibles, so we're headed to John chapter 21. John chapter 21 as we continue here. But let's get started with just a little bit of tidbits. See how your brains are doing this morning. In the late 1880s is when Labor Day was first recognized and celebrated. Which country was the first to make this a part of their practice? You have a choice of six up there. Which country was it? United States is right. Yeah, absolutely. Canada was second. In the time that it was being first recognized and somewhat celebrated, which city became the city where they first did the parades and things of that sort? Lancaster? Yeah, New York, Alice, you are right. Here we go. Which state was the first state to make it an official holiday? New York is not right. Pennsylvania is not right. Ohio, you got it wrong. Uh, Wisconsin, nope. You're getting it narrowed down, folk. Okay. California, wrong. Minnesota, wrong. You got a choice? Anybody want to guess? Okay. Oregon is the last one. At the time Labor Day was initiated, is it true or false? The average workday was 12 hours, six days a week. That is true. Is this true or false? Children as young as five or six were frequently working in factory jobs. That is true as well. When it was first initiated, the largest, ah, okay, the largest number of jobs for the American worker was in what area of these listed? It was farming back in that time was the, was the largest, uh, the largest um, number of people that were, that were required to be working. Today, the largest number of jobs is in what area? It's not farming. It's not government. This is America. It's retail. Retail right now is still the largest. Okay, the average commuting time for American workers is which one of these? 25 minutes is the average right now. Until recently, there was a certain color that we weren't supposed to wear after Labor Day. What was that color? Yeah, it was white, and nobody seems to know why, but it was white. Why was September chosen to be the month to observe Labor Day? Was it because the beginning of school gives them one final long weekend? Was it because in the 1880s, job raises were traditionally distributed at this time of the year? Was it because at that time, the railroad and industrial barons took their month-long vacation, so when the cat's away, the mice would play, type of an idea? Was it to make a holiday halfway between the 4th of July and Thanksgiving, or it was the most popular month for birthdays, and so this gave opportunity to celebrate birthdays during that time. Number two is out of my brain. It is not a factual thing. Number five, even though it's the best month for birthdays, it is not right. Okay. Number one, number one is not right. Okay. Number three is not right. Okay. Yeah, number four. You guessed it. Number four. It was just chosen because it was partly between and they wanted to put the holiday in there. That's, a, that's the historical reason. Isn't that amazing? Okay, here we go. We're going to have that Labor Day, but let's get into our Bible study. We are still in the life of Christ. Three and a half years he ministered. We are three and a half years into the study. And I heard I was being mocked last week about no sign-up sheet for the life of Christ. Okay? That is horrible. 
Okay, there is so much we could do, but let's try to wrap it up today. Here we go. We're at the very last few days of his earthly ministry. We're jumping into those final appearances that you talked about. Now, keep in mind the final appearances that Jesus made to his disciples. These are the post-resurrection appearances. You talked about a couple of them. He made multiple different appearances during that time. These appearances are used as one of the proofs given by Paul that this is a reality, that he really did physically resurrect. So the appearances are important. They are giving evidence of the reality of his resurrection. The disciples, and I think this is really important, the people who would attack our faith and say that these disciples just made this up, the part of the reality of the story is they didn't expect him to resurrect. They had heard about it, but they were surprised. In fact, some of them even did what when they heard that he had resurrected? Did they accept it or did they? They doubted it. They questioned. They denied it. And they said, we don't believe it unless we see it with our own eyes. And so that skepticism of the believers is, is lending credibility to the facts of this story that he really did resurrect. This wasn't a hallucination. This wasn't a desired expectation. This was something that happened despite what they felt. Now, there's a number of those appearances. You talked about several of them. Can you remember some of the appearances? One of the very first is Mary at the tomb, and she thinks it's who talking to her? The gardener. Okay, any other appearances that happened right during that Easter day? Okay, the men on the road to Emmaus. Okay, he meets with the disciples later that day. Who'd you say, Lloyd? Peter he meets with itself. There's a one right that happened right before that. The ladies, as they left the tomb, remember Mary Magdalene stays there and she's weeping. Then as the other ladies leave, he appears to them possibly outside that, that grave garden, and he tells them, tell the disciples, I will meet you in Galilee. That's when he makes that statement. And then you mentioned the others, the road to Emmaus, Simon Peter, someplace on the Lord's day it took place, according to Luke 24. The ten disciples, there's all of them, but who wasn't the one that was with them that evening, that first evening? Okay, Thomas. And then he, several days later, he comes and appears, and Thomas is there, and then that's where Thomas says, when he rebukes, he says, touch me, touch me, and Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Yeah, then he's moved. Then there's another appearance on the shore of Galilee when they are out there fishing, John 21, that we're going to talk about. And then there's another appearance that he makes again when the disciples are on the mount in Galilee. Matthew 28 is not the ascension appearance. It is he's a mount in Galilee. And then Luke 24 and Acts 1, that's the ascension appearance that is taking place on another mountain, but right outside Jerusalem. And when that takes place, um, there's the there's the ascension. Now, of the, the we have the disciples, the twelve, the eleven. We have the ladies. Do you remember what Paul writes? He says, in fact, at one time there was how many people that saw him? Five hundred. Five hundred. And then he makes the comment. He says, of whom many are still alive and can verify and tell you the story. And so we have all these appearances that take place and then it's capstone with Paul seeing Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. So let's do the John 21. This is the appearance that he's going to make to the disciples that what the setting is this. This is according to John 21 and if you look in the text and if you start reading as I just go through the material, he's going to come and appear to them in verse 21 after these things he showed himself to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Does anybody have a footnote about the Sea of Tiberias? Tiberias. That would help the rest of us who don't have a footnote. Where, what is, where is the Sea of Tiberias? 
It is the Sea of Galilee. If you go to John chapter 6 and verse 1, I think it is, it says the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. They called it the Sea of Tiberias because Tiberius, the palace of Tiberius, uh, who was emperor at one time, he had built a palace on the shoreline overlooking the Sea of Galilee, and so they, they called it the Palace of Tiberius, and then therefore the nickname, the modern nickname at the time of Christ was also calling it the Sea of Tiberias as well as the Sea of Galilee. And so don't be confused by that. There's seven disciples, according to verse 2, that are there at that moment. And um, the big debate that often comes up, it says the disciples went to Galilee in disobedience. And the whole story is built. Some in interpreting say that this was all done out of disobedience to Christ. That he had told them, Luke 24, stay in Jerusalem, I will come and speak to you. Which he did. Okay, But according to Matthew chapter 28, when he appeared to the ladies at the garden, he told them, I will meet the disciples in Galilee. So during that 40 days, he had authorized them to go to Galilee. How long? When? We don't know. But then they were to be back in Jerusalem. So why they went to Galilee, it's not out of disobedience. So don't, don't read the entire context that this is all because they're doing something wrong. They're going there because it was prearranged to some degree and uh, they were not disobeying Christ. And so they go there and the reason that they go there is apparently to meet Christ. But why did they go to the sea and get into a boat and start fishing? That's because we read in the text, and there's no mention by Christ that they should do this, but Peter says in verse 3, he says, I go a-fishing, and they say, hey, the others, the others say, we're going to go with you. The question that we might have, and here's the, is the debate, that we really don't know why, but we can surmise or suggest, why did Peter say he wanted to go fishing? Here are some of the different possibilities that people say suggest that while they were waiting to meet Jesus in Galilee, they got bored. And so rather than just sit around, they did the mail thing that said, you know, they didn't have the remote and they weren't getting good reception up there. So they couldn't watch the game. So they got bored and wanted to do something. Well, the thing that they could do and they knew was go fishing. So they just decided to do it because of boredom. Some suggest that that it wasn't boredom, but there was tensions going on. There was these tensions about what's going on in Jerusalem in reaction to Christ. They're up there and this was was their tension reliever that they were going to get into some activity that they enjoyed, they wanted to go fishing to just, uh, to just relieve some of the personal pressures that they have. Some say that, remember in Luke chapter 22, right when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane and they're talking about, you know, right before then or in context of that, he tells them to put up the sword. Well, right before that he had said, hey, by the way, if you don't have a money bag, go get your money bag. If you don't have a cloak, go get your cloak. If you don't have a sword, go get a sword. And they responded by saying, we have two, two swords. And Jesus says, they are enough, or it is enough. And there's all types of discussion of what that conversation meant. But some interpret that to mean that when the disciples, he was telling the disciples that once I'm out of here, you've got to do more of your own provisions. You've got to take care of it. I'll still oversee it supernaturally, but you have to get more involved because I was taking care of your everyday needs. I was, you know, the monies were coming because of my ministry with you, but now you have to take care of yourself. And so some suggest that the disciples got it in their mind that what they need to do is they need to, prov- they need to go to work. They need to do something. They, Jesus is gone. They don't know about their commission, what they're supposed to do clerically-wise or clergy-wise. And so they were, they were kind of, okay, he told us that we've got to get our purses taken care of. He told us we've got to do this, so we've got we to go and get some money. And the only way we know how to make money is to 
fish because that's what most of them had done. Others would say they got discouraged and this is often the idea and it comes from the pre- those of us preaching that say they don't set the context right. We look and say they went to Galilee, they should have stayed in Jerusalem. That's erroneous on our part. And so therefore they went up there you know, we're thinking they went up there out of disobedience, therefore everything is disobedience. They're returning to their own lifestyle. Again, that premise is based on errant understanding of the commands of Christ after his resurrection and assuming that they were disobedient in going to Galilee. There is the possibility, and this is what I'm leaning towards, and I'll show you why in a few moments. There's a possibility that in this interim, they still had responsibility for families, right? Did any of them have families? Yeah, who do we know for sure is married? Peter. Okay, we know Peter is married. So they've got to provide for their families. Somehow, some way, they're in this interim, they're waiting to meet Christ, but they still have to provide for families. And so their way of providing for families is go fishing. And it seems to me that the whole story lends towards that idea that they weren't doing anything evil or wrong, but they were just doing what they thought they had to do. They had to provide for their families. In fact, I think it fits because of what happens in the, in the course of this meal and what Jesus does for them and how he pictures it by the provisions he makes for them. Let's go a little bit further into the story. Okay, they're fishing all night. And then we know they fish all night, but they caught absolutely nothing. Jesus comes in the morning and he calls from the shore and he says, hey, did you catch any fish? They respond, we've got nothing. And he tells them, cast your net on the other side on the right side of the ship. Okay, How many feet difference that was, we don't know. Now what I find really impressive about this is they don't know it's the Lord. How do we know that? Because read the story. After they get the miracle draught of fishes, then John says, it's the Lord. And what is Peter's response when he finds out it's Jesus? He jumps in the water and swims to shore. So everything lends to give the idea that they don't know who exactly it is who's calling from shore. Now, if that's true, and if that's the case, which I think it lends to, to the flavor of the story, what strikes you odd about their reaction when this man on the shore says, cast your net on the other side? That they do it. Why? I mean... Well, you say, why not? They have nothing to lose. But me, who am lazy, I would respond to say, I, I've been fishing all night. And, you know, who are you to tell us our job? Okay? So I think it goes both ways. Is there a possibility, though, that sometimes, have you ever been in fishing, that sometimes somebody at a different angle might see something you don't see? Okay, is that a possibility? that they could lend credibility to the stranger on shore because maybe he saw something that the glare of the sun coming up and if it was in the east and coming off the water, they didn't see it. Which, if as I read some of the books, historically, there are comments made about that. That sometimes that had happened. That people on, were on shore were directing the guys in the boats at times. It's kind of like when we were, when we were away, uh, we were seeing the salmon run. You couldn't see them necessarily in the water, but if you got above and we got up on banks, you could see them from up here where the guys were down below. How that works, I don't know if that was what was happening, but it just strikes me odd that they listen to this man on shore that they don't recognize, but they do. And as soon as they listen to him, all of a sudden the idea is they were not able to draw in the nets because of the multitude of fishes. 
and the fishes were so many. In fact, do you read, read the story or you, you do it from memory? Further in the text, there were so many fish that some 20 years later, 30 years later, when John is describing this, do you, do you, do you remember what he does with the text? What he inserts? He gives the exact number of fish. What does that tell you about John? Okay, he's got a good memory. Okay, he's not afflicted by old age like the rest of us. Okay, he's got a good memory. But what does that tell you about the, the whole story, the whole event? Yeah, well, they counted them. That's right. So they must have done something with them, you know, as far as probably the selling of them, things of that sort. It made such a great impression upon him. He even knew the number. Like some of you, you, you have a life experience and you remember all the data and statistics like ladies. They remember all those figures about the size of the baby, okay, and how many ounces and pounds, probably because it made a bigger impression on the woman than it did the man standing there. And so he remembers 153 fishes, and it is such a significant event. Now think about it. The significance, if you were in the boat and this is happening, what's going through your mind? Okay, what, what all of a sudden, if you're in the boat... The next thought is they say, it is the Lord. Why? What triggered in their mind to say, it's Jesus, that one's Jesus, when they, when they pull up all these fish? Is there, is there something in the memory bank that could trigger recognition? Similar event to when? Okay, he did a miracle of walking on water. Okay, let's even take it even further back than that. Do you remember any other time that Jesus on the Sea of Galilee told the same thing happened to him? Like two years earlier when he says, Peter and to the fishermen who they didn't catch anything, says cast out the boat. They cast it out and they are so many fish they have to call for the other boats to come and bring them up. That's when they are called to follow him. Do you remember that setting? Luke chapter 5. That's when Peter falls down and says, my Lord... And my God, okay, because he is so over them. So this takes them back in memory to the moment when they first, they first were called by Christ to do what? It's not their first meeting with him. The first meeting was when they, when they were with John the Baptist and John said, behold, the Lamb of God and follow him. And that evening they have supper with, with Jesus and Peter even goes and gets his brother Andrew to come. That's their first meeting. But then months later, when they're in Galilee, and that was down in Judea, months later, Jesus steps into the boat and says, cast out. They've already met him. They've heard him preach. But this is their call because he says to them, from now on, after they get all the fish, I will make you to become. Okay, and now there is that recollection of the moment, and there's probably the reminder, hey, this is how, I'm gonna, how, how things are to be. You're not to be going back to fishing to provide for your family or whatever. You're to be fishing fish. You're to be fishers of men. Now, if they were doing it because they needed to provide for their family, they needed reassurances that fishing for men would do what for their families? Provide for their families. That's why I think that the rest of the story plays right with it, okay? They know it's an obvious miracle, brings them back, and now they see it's the, they, they recognize right away, it's the Lord, everything identifies. Peter gets so excited, Peter puts on the coat, it says, and it says he was naked, okay? Um, let me clarify in Jewish culture, naked, naked was not good ever. 
okay? Um, but could they work naked like in their underclothing? Okay, they could, that's what it's probably referring to, that he had the loincloth on. The idea of that when Jesus was crucified, that could have been the nakedness, is the loincloth. To the Jewish mindset, that was naked, naked. And so Peter grabs the robe, jumps into the water, and swims. What does all of Peter's actions tell you about Peter? He's excited. Anything else? Anything else? Okay, what did you say, Kevin? Or rich, sorry. Okay, he's impulsive. You, you, you kind of you get that impression, don't you? Okay. It fits his character. It does fit his character. He's usually out in front of other things. Okay, let, let me see if I can just, you know, suggest these things. I think it shows us he's excitable, rash, impulsive fellow, right? Okay. Does it imply, would you agree, that it indicates he really loved the Lord? Okay, is that a fair assessment? Okay, well, I, I want you to get this because of what happens next. Does it, does it tell you that he loves the Lord? Not that the others don't, but is this his way? You know how we have different, we have, the, it's called love languages. Some of us have the love language that we show by physical touch. Some of us have love language that we express a lot of it uh, verbally. Some of us, our love language is gift giving. We do that a lot. Some of us, our love language is doing projects, things of that sort. Peter's love language is just plain out there wearing it on his sleeve. He loves the Lord. Okay, and so he's very excited about the Lord. And by the and I, it came up and I wasn't paying attention, but obviously he loves and is more excited about the Lord than he is the other guys with the fish. Would you say that's fair? Okay, you guys take care of this load of fish. I don't care what you do with it. I want to see Jesus. Okay, now that plays into the rest of the conversation. That's why I think John included it. John included it not just to tell us about Peter, but to put in context the conversation Jesus has with Peter in light of who Peter is. Okay, watch what I mean by that. Okay, on shore, when they get to the shore, Jesus has breakfast prepared. I think there's a reason that John puts that in there. It's not just to say, okay, we didn't have to, we didn't have to take care of the fish. John is giving so many little details that, are, that seem meaningless or not really pertinent, but for him and the Spirit of God, they were pertinent. I think it is important for the disciples that when they got to shore, that they see that Jesus provided for everything because he has already promised them previously that he would take care of their needs if they do what he wants. Okay? I'm making you fishers of men. You're concerned about providing for family. I will take care of the provisions if you do what I want. Okay? He's not opposed to fish. It's not, you know, the conversation isn't about fishing is evil. Therefore, the moral of the story is if you love me, you never go fishing. That's not the moral of the story. Thank God, right? He wanted some ongoing fellowship with him, but I think this is the key, is that provision of food, when they get there, he is showing them, I can take care of needs without all of you worrying about it. And that plays into why possibly did they go fishing. The um, conversation that takes place, that every one of us in this room who've been saved any length of time, we know what Jesus does. He turns to Peter after they have eaten, and he says, Simon Peter, son of Jonas, love us thou me, okay? In fact, Jesus asks, asks of Peter how many times? How many times does Peter respond? Three times. Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, 
I love you. You know I love you. Now, put it in, in the setting. Peter is so emotionally moved by the Lord that he impulsively swims to shore, forgets other responsibilities and duties, and leaves the other holding the bag, holding the net, and swims to shore. He obviously loves Jesus. And Jesus asks him, do you love me? Okay, now there's more to the story. There's a key in there. There's a key in that. I've left the part of the phrase out. Okay? What's that? More than these. I think that's the key phrase. Okay? And so, by the way, just put it in setting. Don't get confused when you're saying this passage. Peter isn't enthusiastic and excited because, oh man, I denied the Lord and this is the first time I can make things right and I want to do it in private. I'm going to swim out there so I can have a face-to-face with Jesus and get everything squared away before the others show up. That's not true. He's already had a private time with Jesus. He's already had that on Easter Sunday, according to different passages of Scripture. Jesus met with Simon Peter and already probably dealt with those things. So in this conversation, what are interesting phrases, look at the phrase, okay? Is there anything interesting at the beginning of the phrase that strikes you? Why is that? Okay, it is. It's it's key there. There's a key. Where does Simon come from? Hmm? Okay. Do you remember what, who gave him the name Peter? Jesus did later in his ministry, in the ministry. Remember? So he gave him this name that said stone, you know, stone or rock. But Simon wasn't his first name. And he's saying, Simon, son of Jonas, what's he kind of reminding him about? He's made of clay, not stone. Okay. Simon, I kind of, I, you know, I realize you aren't this solid rock that I wanted, wanted to give the keys to. You haven't acted that way lately. So it's almost a reminder, okay, Simon, this is, your, this is who you are. Your, you know, your humanity was on display, especially here in the last few weeks uh, when, you, when you made denial. Not only when you made denial, but when you made, do you remember in the upper room, Simon's claims that he made to Jesus? his boastful claims he made to Jesus? Do you remember what they were? What's that? I love you so much, you're saying we're going to deny you. I won't. I love you so much, I will die for you. And, and in fact, when he made that claim, he said, though all the others in this room would deny you, not me. Now, that was the claim Peter made, okay? That, I think, is critical in this whole conversation. He uses his former name. He reminds them of his earthly ties. But the key is, do you love me more than these? Now, here's the suggestion, okay? Do you love me more than, what do some suggest he's talking about? The fish. Do you love me more than 153 fish? Do you love me more than your job? Could that have been there? That, that could be there. Do you love me more than this occupation? Okay. Do you love me more? Well, let's add it here. Okay, the fishing, the fishing job. Do you love me more than you love your friends? Because remember, some of these that were with him are his brothers and a brother and cousins. Do you love me more than these guys? Okay. I, I don't think that's where he's going. Okay, I think the statement is this. Do you love me more than these people love me? That's what you said in the upper room. You said you love me more than anybody. 
you jumped out of the boat and left everybody else as if you were the only one that really, really cares. The others took care of the fish. And so you in your humanity are caught up at times with your great dedication and compassion. And I want to know this, Peter. I want to know what's, you know, and he does know his heart. And I, by the way, I let's should add, I think this whole setting is not for Peter's sake alone. I think it's for the disciples around him. Because, you know, they don't know what happened between Jesus and Peter in private when he got restored. And so it's a claim, you know, they remember that Jesus had made, or I'm sorry, that Peter made some drastic claims that were over the top and at the same time dissing them. And so, do you love me more than these guys love me? And Peter's response, now here's some key words. Yes, Lord, I know, you know I love you. Now, there's a difference that happens in this conversation. You've heard this statement before. They both use different words for love. Okay? Now, here's, the, here's what, it, what kind of irritates me, okay, is there's a lot of sermons that are made to talk all about these different loves. And there's sometimes statements made that are inaccurate about agapao love and phileo love. Let me start off. I think there's a difference between those two type of loves. I think that Jesus and Peter are, are aware of the difference, and that's why they're using two different words. However, let me just clarify. Some people will say in some sermons, some con- commentaries, they say agapao love is always used of God loving us. And it's a divine love. That is not true biblically. That is not a factual statement. Agapao love is only, only that which God shows. That's not true. That is incorrect. And we need to be honest with the scriptures. Some of the uses of agapao, and Jesus used it here in John 21 asking Peter. But John uses the word at other times. He talks about, yes, there are passages, God so agapaoed the world. Okay? The Father agapaoed the Son. The idea isn't just a divine and only God doing it, but he says, hey, okay, you need to agapao one another, okay? So it does, feel, it does deal with a love from people to people and the disciple whom Jesus loved or agapaoed. So you, you have a variety of usages there. Now, phileo is also used in John. Phileo, some will suggest it's a lower type of love. It's man-to-man love. It's not used of God. That's not true. That's not accurate as well. The Father himself phileos you. It is a love that God has as well. It is a love that the Father showed towards the Son. So you, the Father agapaos, and he also phileos the Son. So at times these words are used interchangeably. And so Jesus, he phileos. He loved Mary and Martha, the disciple whom Jesus phileoed. Okay, so there you have, again, there's different usages where he's referring to how he loved John, Jesus loved John, sometimes agapao, sometimes phileo. The bottom line is these words can be used interchangeably at times. Okay, and we understand that. And yet when we go back into the ancient language and we say, do they sometimes have a distinction? Okay, well, it's obvious in John 21, there is some type of distinction between the two. What is the distinction? So we go to extra-biblical writings, we look at some scriptural writings and say, okay, do they draw some type of difference at times? And there is a nuanced difference. For this, let, let me put it this way. You love, give me your favorite food. Don't say coconut. Okay. 
pizza. Let's take pizza. Okay, I love pizza, somebody says. And that same person says, I love my mom and dad. Do most of us understand there's a difference in those types of loves? Okay, most of us do. Now, maybe that person is saying the same thing because of rudeness. Okay, I, I really love, I really love vacation. Amen, amen, amen. Okay, I really love Deb, my wife. Should there be a distinction between those two loves? Deb, is there supposed to be a distinction? Yes. Okay, okay. So, we, you know, I love my kids. I love the football team. There should be a distinction. Okay. He is using a distinction in the words that sometimes they're used interchangeably, but here's where most understand some type of the distinction. Agapao is more of that commitment, self-sacrifice, serving. It's more of this, you know, this... Um, it's, it's on that plane of doing and sacrificing for somebody where phileo is more on the plane of the feeling itself. Okay? Uh, let, me, let me ask this. Which one of these loves is important for... We had a wedding yesterday. Which one of these loves are, is the loves that make a marriage? Oh, by the way, I can throw in another love, eros. We get the word erotic or the idea of, you know, of physical attraction. So let's take agapao, phileo, and eros. Which one of those loves are involved in marriage? All of them. All of them. However, is there at times that you have to agapao even if you don't phileo? Is there ever those moments? Okay. That you say, I need to do what's right even if I don't feel right, right towards this person? Okay, in that place, it's, it's, it's the one, the agapao doesn't shift. Does that make sense? The fleo might shift because the toast is burnt. Okay, you got a bill that, you, that it's his fault that nobody knew about. Okay, now fleo is kind of like really jeopardized, but agapao still needs to be there. Okay, agapao is there whether there is eros, okay, the physical attraction. Agapao is commitment. Commitment love. So in that sense, that's the distinction. So Jesus is asking Peter, do you agapao me? Is your commitment really, really there no matter what happens? And Peter says, Lord, I really, really, really love you. I care for you. And he's just a notch down. And so Jesus responds. He says, okay, even if you phileo me and you're not quite agapao, I want you to do something. I want you to feed my lambs. He re-asks a second time. He says, Peter, do you agapao me? And Peter says, you know, you know I really phileo you. And then, he, and then he says, okay, now shepherd, and there's different words between feed and shepherd. Okay, this is the word we get pastor from, or poimain. He says, shepherd my sheep. And it's not lambs, it is adult sheep. Okay, then he asks the third time. Now the third exchange is different, because what does Jesus do in the third exchange? He uses the word Peter's using, okay? He steps it down. He says, okay, Peter, is it for real that you really, really phileo me? Now, this is the third time he asked. Peter has jumped in the water. He has shown everything, but Jesus wants to know, where's your heart? Where really is your head and your heart? And at this moment, do you remember Peter's response? Before he says anything, do you remember what it says? Peter is something in his heart. He is grieved because Jesus is asking him again, I told you. I really, really do. And Peter's grieved, but he insists, Lord, you know, I really, really genuinely fillet you. And the response is, feed my adult sheep. 
He com combines the last two commands. So there's a lot of stuff there that's really interesting. And, but then what happens is look at what as the passage just unfolds a little bit more. Then it, after they've had this conversation and they've had this exchange that, that's done and Peter, oh by the way, Part of this exchange, I said, is for the sake of the others nearby. What has Jesus just done to Peter in the minds of the other disciples? He's, he's not just forgiven, but obviously they know he's forgiven. He's, yeah, he's just reestablished authority, leadership, usefulness, yes? So the others can look and say, okay, he's back in good stead with the Lord. That's important. So that public demonstration was good. Then Peter opens up another conversation, which this, this turned into a whole different, different legend that went, that went around the area. Um, Peter, Jesus says to Peter, okay, verily, verily, when, when I say unto you, when you were young, you dressed yourself, you girded yourself, you walked whither you would, would. But when you shall be old, you shall stretch forth your hands, another shall gird you and carry you whither you would not. This spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. Now, Jesus predicts something about Peter. He basically tells Peter, you're going to live a while, okay? You've got, <coughs> you're going to get old. Now, that, the old is relevant, right? To a 16-year-old, what is old? 30, okay? 30 years old. To a 30-year-old, what's old? 60. To a 60-year-old, what's old? Okay? 80, 90. I think 120, okay? Just because I'm getting closing in on those things. So this idea of longer life is, is purely relevant to the individual. But he's telling them, and he says that, and here's the way it's interpreted, Okay? It's two possible interpretations, and you cannot get out of the original language that's used here one or the other. They are both possibilities. There isn't a clarity. One is that the idea that when you're old, you're no, to the point you're no longer able to take care of yourself. Somebody will gird you. Somebody will dress you. Some will, some will do whatever. And sometimes they might even take you where you don't want to go. That is the possibility of the original language. When you're stretching out your hand, they're, they're dressing you. The other possibility is you're stretching out your hand and somebody is binding you. Okay? But the, the word isn't clear in and of itself. Some are saying you're being bound and you're being led around as a prisoner where you don't want to go. What gives us the idea that is probably the latter? Be because John clarifies it. Okay? Again, you have to look at... What's, what's your most important element of interpreting? Context. You look at the context and he says, this signifies by what? Okay, so the implication is not that Peter is going to be elderly, elderly, unable to take care of himself and have to be rolled, rolled around in a wheelchair where he doesn't want to go. It's more of the idea he's going to be bound this way. <coughs> and by the way, the stretching forth your arms, a number of people understand based on that, that possibly a stretching forth the arms is doing this which reminds you immediately of crucifixion, okay, and that he would be crucified, which kind of lends itself, obviously, to the rest of the statement. And so you're stretching your hands, you're going to be crucified. The point is then Jesus gives him a command, okay? John adds and says, here's what he meant by it. And he says, signifying by the death he should glorify. And when he had spoken, Jesus says, here's your command in the original. Keep on following me, okay? I've added two words, in that, in that command that are critical. Keep on. Keep on. 
Keep on. What's he saying? No matter what happens, even if you're bound like this, you have to follow me. By the way, remember the setting. Just within the last couple weeks, three weeks, whatever it would be, four or five weeks, whatever this time frame is, did, did Peter saying, I'm going to follow you, follow you, follow you, did circumstances lend to him not following Jesus? Yes. Yeah, peer pressure. He denied the Lord. So it makes perfect sense that he's saying this and the others are listening in on the conversation. Peter's immediate response, he's just got his fortune told spiritually in a good way. He looks around and he is friends with the other guy. He says, turning around, seeing the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them. By the way, identify who's following right under heels. Who is it? John, John, young John, which also leaned on the breast at the supper, saying, Lord, which is, which is he that betrayeth? John's identifying himself. Peter sees him and says, hey, what's going to happen to him? You're telling me I'm going to die and it's not going to be a pleasant death. What about him? Okay, what, what's going to happen to him? And then Jesus says, if I will that he tarry till I come again, what's that to you? You have to mind your... Yeah, and just see that you take care of who? You take care of yourself. You follow me. Very strong. Follow thou me. Very strong idea. Just worry about yourself. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned to be an encouragement, things like that. But it's basically, you do what you're supposed to do no matter what happens to him. You know, Peter, keep your nose to the grindstone no matter what. And so he's, and, and, and I don't think Peter's evil in wanting to know these things. I mean, we all do. We want to kind of, if we, if we had the chance to say, what's my future? We would ask that. And he basically tells them. And, but what happened is some people picked up on that and said, oh, what Jesus just said is he's coming back before John dies. Read the next verse. They said, Jesus said, even if I tarry until, even if he lives until I tarry. Oh, Jesus just predicted and gave a date, gave a time of when he's returning, and it became a rumor throughout the church. The apostle John won't die. When he gets elderly, if he gets really old, we're going to watch because he, he's not dying. Jesus is coming back. That is not what Jesus meant. Is that something that people would want to understand? Yeah. Yeah, all of us would. All of us want to know, Jesus, will you come before the midnight hour? You know, in fact, we want Jesus to come back when? Okay, okay, yeah. We don't want any more rain today. We want Jesus to come back. And so that's, that would seem normal. So let's take this and just put some things together. Jesus does and will meet every one of our needs, even as we serve him to the best of our abilities. Should we be careful in providing? Yes. But he's going to provide. He's going to say, don't worry about it. Don't get preoccupied about the most important things. I will take care of you. Live for me. When we follow his directives, such as cast the net on the other side, there is going to be success and fullness. To, and this isn't the prosperity gospel. Okay, that's not what I mean by that. Okay, if you give, if you give a tithe here, I promise you from the word of God, you are going to get tenfold back, so you got a tithe. You give the church your car, I promise you that you're going to get a boat. Okay, that's, that's the silly stuff that others are preaching. That's not what we mean by this statement. We're saying this. We're saying that God will take care of giving us success in his eyes, and giving us fullness in his eyes. He will meet, in, the, in doing that, he will meet the minimum which is our needs. Okay? And so that will be taken care of. He is willing to use those, even those believers who have fallen and failed him. Thank God that's true. I don't know about you, but I thank God that is true. That as a believer, we can still be used when we fall flat on our face. Prior to being used, though, 
He wants to know and he wants that question. Do we have genuine devotion and love for him? Okay. In other words, is a relationship with him right? Not just activity. Do you really love me? Do you really love me? Do you really, really, really love me like you say you do? And so, Peter, if that's the case, I have a job for you. I have a job for you. Genuinely loving him is actively serving him. Okay? If we love him, we will do service. We will get involved with helping to reproduce the, fa- the flock of God. We will help to minister to them. And serving others is, our, is the, one of the ways that shows we really love Christ. Okay, again, it's relationship first, but relationship builds. There is fruitfulness. Works, works will show the genuineness of our heart. We are to minister to all levels of saints, the sheep, the young ones, the adult ones. We're supposed to be, in this case, Peter was definitely told to minister to all levels. We're to remain committed to Christ no matter what our personal circumstances or experiences. We're to remain committed to Christ no matter what he does in the lives of other people around us. If he gives them more, so be it. If he gives them less, so be it. If he blesses, you know, for me, this is what I have to look at from, from where, where I'm at in my service to the Lord. If some other church is bigger, that's okay. If another church is, has a healthier status, that's okay. I am not supposed to be concerned about what he does with others. What am I supposed to be concerned about? This flock and be content with what God does here and focus on it. And so no matter what happens, so be it. It's easy and frequently happens that God's people misunderstand God's word. Okay? Or even what Jesus said. And so especially when we look for something sensational. This is, this is such a truism. This is, I mean, I get so many forwards of stuff that is just absolutely sensational that has no biblical basis, but it sounds like something that, woo, this will really say, if we could really find, and they found, they found it. They found Noah's Ark. Now they've got it. And if we get Noah's Ark, everybody will get saved. What did Jesus say? He said, even if somebody came back from the dead... They're not going to, he told the brother, the, the rich man, he said, they have what? That'll bring conversion. They, ha- they, they have the word of God. They have the word of God. But boy, sensationalism, if we could just, if somebody could go to heaven and have a vision of heaven and come back and write a book and make movies about it, this will convince people. And we jump on that bandwagon and we, get, we pay all the money because we want to hear the sensational. But the Word of God says there are things that are revealed in heaven that are not to be spoken of. And then we find out later it's all decried anyway, right? Okay? Sensationalism is not the way we, we approach Scripture. We approach Scripture by looking at the, what it says, when it says it. Now, if I look at the Bible, what it says, when it says it, that is saying I want to study the Bible based upon what, what criteria in order to properly interpret? I have to look at the what? The context. I have to look at the context. Who is he talking to? When is he talking to? And it may not be as sensational as somebody's dynamic you know, thing. They died. They were dead for 25 minutes. And they have so much information about eternity. Okay. Um, I'm still going to go back to the Word of God and preach the Word of God, and the sensational is not what's going to make the difference. It's the Word of God that makes the difference. I need to study it correctly. And so we need to make that a part of our life. Okay, let's do this in five minutes. Ha, 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 ha. Okay, Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Okay, 
Life of Christ is coming to a close after three years. You're going to get the next three weeks' lessons in five minutes, which means I'm going to talk really fast. Okay, Matthew 28. You all know this text. Here's what you got. There are multiple times Jesus said in this, this last, okay, this last um, period of time that he talks to them. And by the way, there's multiple times he says, you shall be witnesses. We sometimes approach these passages and say they're all the same event. They all happen at the same kitchen table, at the same evening. That's not true. This to me was very eye-opening and challenging that Jesus records this statement. Now in the upper room he says several times, I have sent you as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Then on Easter Sunday he says the same thing, as the Father has sent me, so send I you to be a witness. Then in Matthew 28, it's on some mountain in Galilee, he says you shall be witnesses, basically go and make disciples of all men. Then in Luke 24, as he's ready to you ascend into heaven, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Okay? So you have all these different occasions that he says, or then when the angels say, you know, after that power shall come upon you, you shall be witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. They are not talking about one time that he said this. They point out that he said this multiple times. If he is saying this multiple times, what does that tell you? It is really important to Jesus this last will and testament, this was the thing he was stressing as he was saying that this is important. Now, putting it all together, here's what I can do. It's okay, let's take this thing, this time, this time, this time. During these 40 days, let's pull it together. They all talk about witnessing. What do they all say if I put them together? Well, here's what they say, one of the, some of the things, that he has all authority. That's what we're taking the Matthew. All power, verse 18, Matthew 28, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Why is that important for him to say it this way. I have all power. Now, based on that, you go and be witnesses. Why is that stated in that sequence? Why do you think? He says, I have all power, therefore go and be witnesses. Does the all power do anything for the witnesses? What's that? What do you mean by that? Give them confidence. Okay, that's good. Okay, it gives them confidence that they can be successful at this. Okay, is there anything else that might come out of this? Yes, no? Okay, it's his power. Not, okay, we can add a lot of these statements. But again, I've got limited time, so let's do this. As such, it obviously says he has the right to tell us what to do. He is reiterating, I, I have the power. You do what I say. As it's okay, okay. Um, you, you see something, you see, you go someplace and you're not sure, should we go through there or shouldn't we go through there? Should we walk on that thing? Shouldn't we walk on that thing? Some people are, but some people aren't. Or some people say, don't you dare, like this. Don't you dare share the gospel. You can't share the gospel in public places. But the one who has all power told us we should share the gospel. Okay, so he's reiterating the fact that I have more authority than anybody when it comes to this area. Okay, which is an important thought for you and me. Okay, and I think just what you said uh, about that confidence that here he is. He's sending them to challenge the evil one. There's going to be moments they're going to have doubt. Is this what we're supposed, you know, this isn't working. All power, all power is given unto me. He says something else, okay. He says in this context of giving them the authority, this, one of the phrases that comes up in John 20 is, whosoever sins you forgive, 
they will be forgiven. Whosoever sins you don't forgive, they're not forgiven. Now, what have some churches taken with this? Some churches say what he just did is he gave the apostles the power to personally forgive sin. Do you agree with that? Is that what he meant? That you have to go to the clergy in order to have forgiveness. Aren't you glad we don't have confessionals? Okay. But some have developed that idea. Never, never. Because the Jews, all these things are true. In fact, even in the Old Testament, I found it interesting and just reminding myself of this. Jeremiah does this. Ezekiel does this. And they were the two I stopped with. That they say, I am about to tear down. I am. They weren't the ones doing it. They were God's spokesmen. And so they spoke on his behalf, but they used the I, the I in there, not to say that they are doing it themselves, but as messengers or vehicles of God. And I think that's important here. You never see an apostle, read an apostle, claiming this ability to forgive sins. In fact, it's very clear. They say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus forgives the sin. The one who he's talking to in part of this conversation is Peter, and Peter makes it very clear, Jesus and Jesus only. And never in the pastoral epistles are clergy given the right to forgive sins. So what they are basically given is the right to announce, to say, okay, Brian, did you call upon Christ to be your Savior and ask him to forgive you? You say, yes, I did. Well, based upon the promises of the Word of God, I can assure you your sins are forgiven. Okay, it's a declaration statement. It's not, it's not a production statement. And so that's what he's giving them authority to say, hey, wait a minute. Hey, Jim, um, did you, let's just see, uh, you stole from your employer at, at the school system. You embezzled $100,000. Okay, um, and you said, well, I asked God to forgive me. And I said, did you make restitution? And you say, absolutely not. It's my money. Based upon the word of God, I can say clearly, you are not you're not forgiven. Okay, make sense? That's all we're talking about. Okay, so let's not let somebody do different type of doc- doctrinal gymnastics. He enables them to do the job. In all these statements, the Holy Spirit gets brought in. Why? Because he's the one that's going to help. He's going to give that, that power, that ability. And so there's that time in John 12. This is, this is the week after Easter, uh, eight days after. When he's appearing, he says, I send you. And then he says, I'm going to send you into the world as the Father sent me. And he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. That is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit of Acts chapter 1 and 2. That is the Old Testament time that the Holy Spirit could come and go to empower The permanent indwelling of the Spirit doesn't come until what feast day? Pentecost. But he gives them the Spirit, and it's just a reminder that you're going to need the Spirit. In fact, in a few weeks from now, he's going to be there permanently. And so that's a very important one. He tells them, okay, you make disciples. Now, here's the order in Matthew chapter 19 and 20. You know it, but let me rephrase this, and then we'll wrap up here. He tells them, and there's only one imperative in in this passage. The imperative is the command. We read it in English as three commands. That's not accurate. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe. There's only one imperative. The single imperative in this passage is this, make disciples. Okay? The rest of it reads this way. While you are going, and he says, while you are going, teach or make disciples of all nations. While or how you do it, by baptizing them, by teaching them to observe all things. And so the while going, this is a, this is a phenomenal statement. 
The wild going is he assumes we're interested in the world. He assumes we're not being prejudiced. He assumes we're trying to get out the gospel. He makes a statement by baptizing them. You cannot, you cannot do gymnastics with scripture that's saying baptism is not important. That is some, it's part of the commission and the practice of making disciples. He says that this identifying me with is a real part. And it's for not just a select few or an only few, but making all disciples, all disciples need to be baptized. You just can't get away from this biblically unless you are denying a portion of Scripture and what he's saying here. And then he says, teaching them to observe all things. Obedience is so important. This obedience is not the commands I like. I like the command that says, my wife is to submit unto me. I like that command. I don't like the command that I'm supposed to die for my wife sacrificially. Okay, you can't do that. You can't do that. You and I just, we, we can't do those things. And then he gave the assurances that I'm going to be with you always, every place. So there's lots of things that we could come out of it. Basically, it's just simply this, the importance of giving out the gospel. Right after this is the ascension. He goes into heaven, and it opens up the book of Acts, which is where we read the ascension. So the next class, the life of Christ and beyond, okay, is where we get into the book of Acts. Thanks.